As uh, you are standing in body or spirit, would you follow after me as we are joining together in the very ancient confession of faith of the people of God, uh, entitled the Shema, Deuteronomy 6.4. Jesus later called it the great commandment. We'll do it in Hebrew and then in English together. Shema Israel. Shema Israel. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Had. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, be seated, please. Our pastor at our Riverside campus, our North Campus, Scott Hare, had the privilege with his family of spending the summer of 2012 in Jerusalem. And so each week before the sermon, I ask him a question about Jerusalem, and he gives a response. As he responds this morning, when you look at the screen, a helpful bit of information is to know that the first temple built by Solomon was destroyed by the Babylonians, which we'll be talking about this week and next week. Seventy years later, it got rebuilt during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, but it wasn't rebuilt very impressively. And then King Herod, about 500 um, years after that, will build it into the glory that it had in the day of Jesus. And then it gets torn again, uh, torn down again. And Scott will make reference to that uh, in this interview. So how might Jerusalem today be like it was sort of in ancient times? really interesting. I think probably at every point in time, people have asked that exact same question because over and over and over, uh, history happens in Jerusalem. Profound, like humanity-centered history. Uh, And so what I would say right up front is that that same kind of history and attention to anything that happens in Jerusalem is still the focus of the known world. Uh, so that's one thing that I would see is the same, that somehow, both by clear, obvious, God chose this space, but also in a mystery, how does that actually happen? Uh, the world still pays direct attention to any tiny thing in Jerusalem. Uh, anybody, any bad thing happens, any good thing happens, and everybody's comments. Uh, Jerusalem is the center of people's attention. Um, There's some things that are the same in Jerusalem as they were in ancient times because there's some crazy, beautiful historical realities that there are actual ancient ruins from many different layers of time where you see things that were built up and thought of as the most important things in the world that are then destroyed. And on top of them is something else that everybody was just sure is the most important thing that's ever happened. And it's destroyed. And you see these layers of these ancient remnants and you assume that they're there because, of course, they would all obviously be there. But the reality is they don't have to be there. They're telling a story. And I always believe this is an intentional story for us. And I guess a part of that means that maybe whatever we think is really the most important, enduring and amazing thing in the world, maybe one day it'll be a ruin and there'll be something else. Um, and then the final thing is, even though those things seem to churn over and over and over in Jerusalem, still there's something profound about it. Like, even though one thing has been changed and made something else, somehow it, it holds on to 
all of the rest of the story. The temple is a great example where even though it's just it's come up from a rock, from a threshing floor, all the way up to Herod and now a ruin and now multiple stories and violence and beauty and peace and everything that comes with it. Everybody is trying to say in one particular place, this is what the world means. This is who God is. This is how we should be. This is the way that the world should be. And um, I think it's always been like that. And then probably... Um, there's always children and there's always been children. And so for me, a part of Jerusalem is who's watching, who's running around and um, what will they learn um, and who will they become? The children are fascinating. The scripture this morning comes from Jeremiah, and uh, Jeremiah is about a hundred years after um, the Assyrians had uh, gotten ready to attack Jerusalem, and God had miraculously uh, spared Jerusalem and the temple, and 185,000 Assyrians had died in one night. So a hundred years later, the Babylonians come knocking on the door. Uh, but the people in Jerusalem are pretty confident that nothing's going to happen to them. And so God sends the prophet Jeremiah uh, to them. And this is uh, chapter 7. It's called Jeremiah's Temple Sermon. Uh, this is the word that came to Jeremiah, uh, the prophet from the Lord. Stand at the gate of the temple of the Lord's house and there proclaim this message. This is the word of the Lord to all of you peoples of Judah who come through this gate to worship the Lord, the God Almighty. This is what the Lord says. Reform your ways and your actions and I will let you live in this place. Do not listen to the deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. If you really change your ways and your actions and you do not oppress the foreigners, the uh, fatherless and the widows, if you deal justly uh, with each other and uh, do not uh, follow the God, a God that will do you harm and you do not shed innocent blood in this place, then I will let you live here in the house that I gave to your ancestors forever and ever but look, you are trusting in deceptive words. Will you murder and steal, commit perjury and adultery? Will you burn incense to Baal and follow gods that you have not known and then come in and stand before me in this house and say, we are safe, safe to do the detestable things that you have done? Has this house called by my name, become a den of thieves. I've been watching, declares the Lord. So go now to my place in Shiloh, the first place where I put a dwelling with my name on it, and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of the people of Israel. While you were doing all these things, I spoke to you again and again and again, and you did not listen. I called to you and you did not answer. And now what I did to Shiloh, I will do 
to this house which bears my name, the temple that you trust in. I will cast you away from my presence like I did your fellow Israelites, the descendants of Ephraim. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When we were growing up, one of our childhood games was freeze tag. And I don't know how they played it in your neck of the woods, but the way we played was there was a base that you could go to and be safe. And you could stand on that base and they couldn't tag you. And if they got close to you and they were going to tag you, you reminded them you were on the base and you said, King's X. And King's X means I'm safe here. You can't get me. Well, the story this morning in Jeremiah 7 is about a whole group of people who live in the city in Jerusalem. They are surrounded by the Babylonians. God says you're going to get punished for all the sins you've committed. And their response to Jeremiah is, King's X. Nobody can harm us. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. They said three times, we are safe. You can't get me. Even though they had done some pretty terrible things, they had oppressed the foreigners, the fatherless, the widow. They had not acted justly with each other. They had worshipped other gods. They had sacrificed innocent blood in this place, which means not necessarily in the temple. If you go to the end of the chapel, it, uh, the chapter, it's they would sacrifice their children in the valley below to a false god to ensure that god's protection. Within sight of the temple, they're taking one of their children and offering them up to this God. They're doing all this and saying, temple of the Lord, temple of the Lord. And so God sent Jeremiah to correct them. Now, it's not a word they want to hear in the temple. So Jeremiah has to stand outside the temple and talk to them as they go in and out. Reminds me of the founder of Methodism, a guy named John Wesley. He would go into uh, churches in the Church of England and tell them that they needed to repent and they needed to uh, clean up their act. And, and so they threw him out and they wouldn't let him preach in their churches anymore. So he went next to the church and stood on his father's grave in the church graveyard because that was his property. And he would preach to the people going in and out as they went to church. In the same way, Jeremiah is standing. Only Jeremiah's not saying temple of the Lord, temple of the Lord. Jeremiah is saying things uh, that remind us of the Ten Commandments or the Shema. He's telling them to love God. He's telling them to love each other. He's telling them to treat people well and do not oppress them. That's his message. And you get the sense from Jeremiah that what's happening in his day is that people actually go to the temple of God to avoid doing what God wants. They actually go to the house of God to avoid encountering the living God. And so they can do whatever they want and then just say, Temple of the Lord, we're safe. No one can touch us here. But Jeremiah doesn't think Temple of the Lord works. He said those are deceptive words. And so he confronts them with the message from the living God that they're going to the temple so they won't have to listen to it. In a sense, they're going to church so they don't have to listen to God. Karl Barth um, said something, a very famous theologian, many decades ago. Donna found this and sent it to me, and I'm still chewing on it. But this is what he said. He said, Christians go to church as their last stand against God. It's like they go to kind of get away in some ways from God. And, and, and through the rituals or the things they practice, God can sort of fit in the box in which they want God to stay. But Jeremiah is trying to tell them about a living God and the living God saying, hey, 
I'm not going to protect you just because we have the temple, because of all these things you are doing wrong. So it got me to thinking, what is it that I shout, temple of the Lord about? Or other people say, temple of the Lord. What do we think we rest in rather than the presence of the living God? I think there could be a number of things. I think some people um, rest in and trust in their salvation experience with Christ, which is very important, but they think, you know, I, I, I was saved when I was eight years old. Temple of the Lord. I don't have to do anything else. God's done with me, and I'm done with God. I walk down that aisle. Temple of the Lord. For other people, it's, um, it's the Bible. Well, I know the Bible. I know the Bible. Don't mess with me, God. I know the Bible. Temple of the Lord. I'm reminded I did a revival years ago. And when it was over, a person attending the revival came and said, Now, what church are you? And I told her what Methodist church I was from. And then all of a sudden, she began to uh, prophetically tell me, from her mind, everything that was wrong with the Methodist church and how we were all going to hell. And her husband was with her, and he didn't say anything. He just nodded approvingly. Because I'm looking at him like, could you help me here? You know, I'm a visitor. Uh, And then when it was over, I'm stunned And he turns to me with a smile and he said, you know, my wife is really into the word. And I thought, man, there's some words she missed. Like, judge not lest you be judged. (laughs) Love your neighbor. Love your enemies. There's all sorts of things. Sometimes we trust in the Bible, but in our doctrines about the Bible, and we hide in them so we don't have to hear or try to hear what God still might be saying to us today. For other people, it's a church. Well, we have a church, and I go to church, and my church stands, and as long as I'm part of that, we're safe. Temple of the Lord. You can't get me. For some, it's our heritage as a Christian nation. Well, nothing could ever happen to us. We were founded as a Christian nation. Temple of the Lord. Temple of the Lord. And I think when Jeremiah hears that stuff, Jeremiah shakes his head because he knows better. You know, there's one I know none of you do, but I'm just going to make sure. Let's just take this off your list. I don't know the things that you trust in, like the temple, but there are some people that actually trust because they know pastors. Like, I know pastor so-and-so. That's a real bad one. Don't do that. I remember years, I learned this as a student minister in North Carolina years ago. I'm visiting with a family that's kind of been disconnected from the church and and disconnected from each other. And and I'm listening and everything. And they go to great pains to tell me how they know Pastor So-and-so in the next town. So I go back and report to the senior pastor there that, hey, you know, it's an interesting discussion. And did you know they're very good friends with Pastor So-and-so in the next town? He just smiled, didn't say one word about it. It took me two years to find out through the grapevine that Pastor So-and-so had done a number of things wrong that basically split that church and caused his family to leave him. What is it that we trust in? Now, I'm not saying pastors are bad. I'm not saying church is bad. I'm not saying the Bible is bad. Our experience of salvation is bad. I'm not saying the heritage of our country is bad. I'm just saying that that is not the life with God. That is like the bark that protects that life. You know, you come and, and, and you see a tree bark, but that's not the most important part of the tree. There's life inside there and the bark protects it. What is it? Our living relationship with God is what Jeremiah is interested in, not hiding behind a temple and saying, temple of the Lord. I think they use the temple to avoid actually having to deal with God. Now, 
You might wonder, well, how do I know if I'm doing that? Well, I don't know for your life, but I can tell you what it looks like in my life. I know I'm trusting in something other than the living God. Whenever I spend most of my time, whether it's in church or or in a prayer room or in my office, trying to talk God into doing things my way, rather than saying, God, what is it you want from me? What is it you're saying? What is it that needs to happen here? When I try to use God and make God my guarantor of everything I want in life, rather than to submit myself to God and say, what is it you need done and how can I be a part of it? If I look for God to answer just my needs, I know that I'm trusting not really in the living God. I'm trusting in some experience of God I've had in the past or something else. Um, Somebody reminded me after the early service of something they heard from me years ago. And it was a conversation, and you may have heard me say this, uh, between theologians and poets and scientists and, and anyways, on PBS years ago about the book of Genesis. And so some English literary wonderful types are going back and forth and on and on about things that in Genesis that they like or they don't like. And the theologian finally looks at them and says, you know what your problem is? And the professor's kind of caught up short and like, what? They said, your problem is you want the God you want and not the God you have. Whenever I want the God I want and not the God that we have, I know that I'm trusting in something else other than God. And it happens. And it happened to Jerusalem in the days of the Babylonians. It happened in Jesus' day in the days of the temple. It happened again years In fact, centuries later, you may not know this, but for the most of the 19th and 20th century, the best biblical scholarship and the best theological work, in other words, the people who knew more about the Bible and God than anybody else, were Germans. German theologians ruled the day. Fred Craddock went there and was doing postdoctoral work, and he was talking with them this in the late 60s and and they were talking about the experience of how many german churches and christians supported hitler and and craddock thought about it and this was the conclusion that he came about to about these wonderful scholars and theologians he said well it seems that they knew the bible but they didn't know god is there something we trust in more than the living god or do we come on our knees as a church, whether it's in a sanctuary or in a temple, and say, God, what is it you want? And how can we be a part of it? When we do that, we're worshiping the living God. Okay. I do have time if you have questions about either Jeremiah 7 or something I've said or something that stirred in you. That clear? <laughs> While you're thinking, this came up at 8.30. The observation was that one person made is part of the problem that the people in Jerusalem got into is they completely ignored the first two commandments, which is one, don't have any other gods before me, and two, don't make any sort of image of that god. And so they had the god they wanted to invent and made that temple a god for them. And I thought, that was a pretty good observation. That was a pretty good observation. 
Thoughts you have? Okay. I don't know. It, Steve, are we on? This? One. Okay, sorry. Right. Just speak a little bit about the mask we wear just to be, um, use our good manners like all that. <laughs> okay, the question was about masks that people, uh, people wear. Um, one of the things I can I can say about that is, the, if you look at the Psalms, those are people who are demasked. If you look at the Shema, um, and one of the things that says, "Love the Lord your God with all your heart," uh, what the rabbis taught about that, which Jesus would have known, was all your heart is both good and evil. That what you don't want to do is dress up for God. That you take all of that and and you worship God with. Uh, uh, with all of that, and and so you learn of God's acceptance. We also learn of repentance. And so I think it's very important in communities of faith that that we not try to hide um, behind Bibles or buildings or programs or whatever, uh, but that we try to be who we try to be open about who we are and who we're trying to become. So I think that's very um, significant. Uh, years ago. I was pastor in another town, and um, and one morning I was sitting in our brand new sanctuary in the back, and I was doing my devotional time, and and just and just got these um, anger fantasies that just sort of floated through of some you know people in the church that that were kind of working at cross purposes with me, so I was not asking God to bless them, and uh, and I remember sharing that with my small group, and saying I'm really embarrassed, but this is what happened while I was praying today. And one of them, I thought, said something very wise. He said, you know, I can't think of a better place to have those bad thoughts than in the sanctuary in front of God. Um, and God could handle them. And if you're not sure God can handle it, go to the Psalms. <laughs> next, um, next Sunday, we have a really interesting psalm that I assure you, you have not heard read at church very often at all. Because... Um, uh, it, churches everywhere leave out the last two verses, and and the psalm is this: the psalm, the person writing it is sitting in Babylon. The uh, uh, temple has been destroyed. Their dreams are crushed, and they said, "God, blessed and happy are those people who will take the Babylonian babies and smash their heads on the rocks." That's real stuff, and uh, you don't typically hear that psalm read. Um, in church, but we'll be looking at that. What's behind that? So thank you. That's a great question. I think we need to bring all that we are in front of God because I don't think we change from shame as much as we change from acceptance and love. Um, I already know where I'm screwing up. I don't generally need you to tell me, but if you tell me that I'm loved in the midst of that, then I want to, I want to live up to that love. Um, and I think, um, so I think, I don't know if that's what you're, where you're going, Janice, but that's where I go with it. That we, we need to bring, not try to hide behind, behind something here. Because um, one of the things that they say in, um, in recovery ministry is what is un, uh, unshared is unhealed. In other words, what you try to hide from other people is the part of your life that's not going to get touched and not going to 
get better. So what I love about Jeremiah's, and if you know anything about his life, it wasn't a fun life. But kind of what you see is what you get from him and from the Psalms as well. But in that is the hope that in that sharing that those parts of you that, that you dare to share are the very parts that I think that can, uh, can be affected positively by the community and by the Holy Spirit and can be changed. Anyone else have one? Battery must be dead. Sorry. Okay. Okay. For me, one of my things, actually, I guess lately in my prayers has been this God has a plan for me and this is my design. Mm-hmm. But when you're speaking today, all the little barks out there serve as reminders of I can't give up and stop trying. Mm. I, the observation was that for her King's X, a lot of time is the design and God plan that God has for your life. And um, so I guess woven into that are, uh, is a lot of protection that might keep you from, I guess, experimenting, growing, being vulnerable. Is that, am I reading too much in? Just not to make excuses. Okay. To keep trying. Yeah, but not to make, okay. Yeah, I, one of the things I do want to say, and then I'll, I'll stop. Thank you. That's a really vulnerable and powerful observation. Uh, so many people I know want to quote Jeremiah 29:11, For I know the plans that I've made for you, for good and not for evil, and to give you hope of the future, which is beautiful. Um, but remember, that's in chapter 29, as Jeremiah's walked through some pretty hard and tough stuff. Sometimes we want to claim that promise without having gone on the journey. In other words, I want like uh, an old Star Trek language, I want Scotty to beam me into my preferred future and not have to actually walk through those those steps the other thing i love about jeremiah 29 is it tells them you know you're going to be conquered by the babylonians you're carted off into babylon and i want you to work for the good of the city in which you live can you imagine after they destroy jerusalem god's telling me i've got to try to help make babylon a better city and then god says for i know the plans i have for you they're for good and they give you hope and a future. So uh, anyway, thank you for the questions and observations.